Our scripture reading for today is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 to 21. If you're using one of the black Bibles that you can find in the pew in front of you, that would be found on page 1018. 2 Peter 1, verses 12 to 21. Please stand as we read God's word. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain." And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You can be seated as I pray. Almighty God, who's making all things new, use your word today to change your people. And for those who are not yet your people, we ask that you would use your words for awakening. In Jesus' name, amen. Human history is full of these dramatic swings of the pendulum. One movement gives way to another movement. People forget what they were committed to working toward and suddenly they grow lackadaisical in their devotion to the cause. Or worse yet, they grow bored and uh, they just want to opt for something new, anything new. So when an important leader who has made an impact is about to die, one hopes that he or she will have important words for those who are left behind, words that stir them up to action Words that preserve unity or grant perspective. Words that ensure the community will continue on the path on which they had started. For example, in the year 1227, Genghis Khan told his faithful warriors, Let not my end disarm you, and on no account weep for me, lest the enemy be warned of my death. Or on a less violent note, in 1841, U.S. President William Henry Harrison died saying, understand the true principles of government. I wish them carried out. I ask nothing more. Well, sometime in the mid-A.D. 60s, the apostle Peter penned the words before us today. And he had never governed a nation or conquered broad territories, but he had witnessed God the Son breaking into human history, 
winning victory over the curse and death and rising to reign in power over everything. Peter knew and, and Peter had taught the churches that human flourishing depends on doing life Jesus' way. But what would Peter say as his time on earth drew to a close? What was and is the dire need of the people Peter left behind? His words to us essentially are these. God has given you everything you need, so look to the book. Look to the book. Last week we started this series with Peter's opening challenge that through God's precious and very great promises, which we find throughout the scriptures, we can become partakers of the divine nature and escape from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And in today's passage, Peter continues his reminder that all of scripture contains God's power to grant us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So this second half of chapter one, it reminds us of our utter need for the Bible, because unless we understand the wonder of its authenticity, its power, its reliability, we'll drift off course, and we'll hardly know what to make of uh, Peter's words to us next in chapters 2 and 3. So the main message for us today is that Scripture is what keeps us established in the truth till the end. Scripture is what keeps us established in the truth to the end. Verses 5 to 11 had spoken to us about qualities, certain human attributes that mark the people of God, that are evidence of God's Spirit's work in us. So if you remember, they were faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. And it's those qualities to which the beginning of our section today makes reference there in verse 12. Because these qualities were like signposts. These qualities ensure that the believer is on the gospel path toward glory. It's not that performing these qualities somehow earns us a place with God, but rather the enjoyment of God's gift of salvation always yields these types of fruit. So Peter begins in verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So the original audience of this letter already knew and was established in the truth, and yet Peter was trying to stir them up with an additional reminder and the fact that they needed a reminder should cause our ears to perk up as well. Because maybe we've known the truth of Christ and the character of his kingdom for some time, and it's grown stale to us or unexciting. Maybe we struggle to pay attention at church or in our personal Bible reading because, well, we doubt we'll find anything unexpected there. Second Peter is written because there's actually a great need to be taught what we already know. There's deeper comprehension to be gained. And this is important because the imitations and the distortions of God's path, they're countless, they're constantly coming after us, and they're very creative. So unless the real thing is capturing and recapturing our imaginations, we'll soon trade the path of living under Jesus' lordship for a path of superficial religiosity that actually has no power. 
So Peter's effort at reminding them is urgent because he knows that he is going to die soon. Peter's death isn't documented in Scripture, but we do have some historical account of it. Uh, Clement was the first bishop of the church at Rome. He was also a contemporary of Peter and Paul, and he wrote a letter to the church at Corinth. Uh, it's not part of the Bible, but it's, um, it was written by him to encourage the church at Corinth near the end of the first century. And in this letter, Clement recalls that Peter endured multiple forms of torture before finally dying at the command of Emperor Nero sometime before A.D. 68. So, when Peter was writing this book, he was likely seeing the political situation for what it was. He might already have been in jail, or at least noticing the attention he seems to be getting from Nero's soldiers. The shortened years till his death only reminded him more and more of what Jesus had already told him in John chapter 21, when he said, When you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you, and carry you where you do not want to go. John then comments that this Jesus said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. After revealing this hard truth, Jesus told Peter, follow me. So with a painful death just around the corner, Peter writes to this church so that they'll be able to recall at any time the things he has said. He inscripturates his eyewitness account. He inscripturates it. He seems confident that these writings will fulfill their purpose because uh, he says you'll be able to recall them at any time. It shows that Peter knew his letter would become more than just a letter. We'll see in chapter 3 that he very much had an understanding that the final books of the Bible were being written in his day at the hand of the apostles. He and Paul and others would die, but their inspired writings would unpack and explain the Old Testament in light of their fulfillment in Jesus. And Christians, though not, though not eyewitnesses in the future, they would still see and believe. It's exactly how Jesus anticipated it when he asked Thomas, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So Peter is anticipating that transition when the day of the apostles will be done, but they will have left inspired writings, part of the Bible, to keep the rest of us on track in generations to come. These are comforting words in verse 15, that with the death of the eyewitnesses, the second generation will still have everything they need in order to believe. And you know, one implication of that is that if Peter assured the second generation of Christians of that, that they would be just fine without him, then we certainly don't need to fear when a key, when a key leader is taken from us, whether that's by death or relocation, we have the apostles' writings just as they did. And so if those who have taught the apostles' writings to us were faithful, they didn't add anything that would make us dependent upon their presence. You see, the church is always just one step away from the apostles, and our leaders are meant to point us to Peter and Paul and Matthew and John and the others' sacred writings, not to try to replace the apostles in any way. So if any Christian leader calls himself an apostle, don't trust him. He was not an eyewitness. He's trying to add his own teachings to scripture for his own gain. Also, if any pastor preaches particularly well and you find yourself according him celebrity status in your heart, be careful. 
It's not wrong to give thanks for the gifts God has given his various leaders, but we have to remember it's the book we need. If they didn't need Peter's ongoing presence, then God can raise up faithful teachers to replace whoever moves on from our circles as well. It's the book we need, not the dynamic leader. And if we have the book, then we are more than adequately equipped to recall the way of the eternal kingdom. That's true because this book is genuine testimony of God acting in history. Verse 16 and following. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter's clear here that he and the other apostles did not follow cleverly devised myths. You know, it's popular in our culture, and it's popular in, even in some apostate churches, to speak of Scripture as if it was just that, just a collection of myths. You see, a myth is a traditional story of ostensible but unlikely historical events that was formed to unfold part of a worldview or to explain a practice or a belief or a natural phenomenon. So if the Bible is just a myth, then we can handle it more as a curiosity than anything else. We can theorize about the meaning behind the meaning, but we never have to let it address us in a straightforward manner. Because if it's myth, then we stand over myth in judgment. It has no authority over us. But the thing is, people don't generally die violent deaths for the sake of a myth which 11 of the 12 apostles did. And a myth doesn't usually involve events from only a few years past that could have been verifiable to any willing to do the research. Like you don't write some origin story for Justin Trudeau that could be made into a Marvel movie and then you try to pass it off as history. It's too easy to disprove. And that's why Paul, when he was on trial with Herod Agrippa II, he was so bold as to say, I'm persuaded that none of these things, meaning Christ's ministry, death, resurrection, none of these things has escaped the king's notice, for this has not been done in a corner. So not exactly fertile ground for myth-making. And this is important because Peter's main focus throughout this book is the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he wanted to see us prepared for the coming in the power of Christ and his kingdom. He wants to warn us in chapter 2 about those who are denying that coming with their lifestyles. And he wants our hope undiminished by those in chapter 3 who mock at the promise of Christ's return. So he shares a memory here that fully convinced Peter that Jesus would certainly be coming back in power. That memory was the transfiguration. In verses 17 and 18, Peter recalls what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. And this event was recorded for us in, in three Gospels, and then the fourth Gospel makes reference to it. Suddenly, Jesus took, he took three, his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John. He took them up on a mountain, and suddenly he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And there appeared beside him Moses and Elijah, and they were talking with him. 
about what he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And a voice from heaven confirmed Jesus' identity as the very Son of God. In short, Peter, James, and John were given a preview of the glorified Christ, and it terrified them. They fell on their faces, and they stayed there until Jesus came and touched them and told them to get up. When they looked up, the brilliance was gone. They saw only him. Now, this is thoroughly amazing that we can read a firsthand account from someone who witnessed this crucial moment in redemptive history like that. But notice where Peter goes with that memory. He doesn't say, so trust me, I know what I'm talking about. Instead, he focuses on how that experience corroborates with Scripture. He says, and so we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. When Peter says the prophetic word in verse 19, he's, that's basically synonymous with Scripture because in the Jewish understanding of that time, all inspired Scripture was prophecy. Now let's stop and think. How is Scripture confirmed by what Peter saw and heard on the mountain? First, let's think about how Moses was present. So some 1,500 years earlier, when Moses met with God in the tabernacle, he too would emerge with a face that was shining On Mount Sinai, Moses asked God to show him his glory, a prayer that was more than answered on this day. And the account in Luke says that they were discussing Jesus' upcoming exodus. Truly, Jesus would function as the greater Moses, not only presenting God's law in the Sermon on the Mount, but leading God's people through the waters of death, out of slavery to sin, into the promised land of new life in him. In Deuteronomy, Moses records that the Lord said, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And now Moses is standing next to that greater prophet. He's conversing with them. He's bearing witness that we must indeed listen to this Jesus. Moses represented the law's testimony of Jesus, but Elijah represented all of the prophets. He was a vessel for the power of God, as few before had witnessed. His ministry was marked by fire and whirlwind and great victory over God's enemies. In Malachi, Elijah was promised to return before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, Jesus elsewhere confirms that the ministry of John the Baptist fulfills that prophecy, But this encounter, too, serves as a seal of its fulfillment. But that's not all. Interestingly, the voice's testimony about Jesus as the beloved son also reminds us of Genesis 22, where Abraham is told to take Isaac, his son, whom he loves, and offer him to God on the mountain. In the end, the Lord provides a ram as a substitute, which prophesied of Jesus, the coming lamb of God and beloved son. Lastly, I'll mention that Peter says all this happened on the holy mountain. The holy mountain. It doesn't seem like there was anything previously sacred about that mountain. So he's saying that the transfiguration itself made that place the holy mountain. And it's likely that his thoughts were surrounding Psalm 2, where God says, As for me, I have set my king on my holy hill. Psalm 2 continues, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And it ends, 
Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's not hard to see why Peter would turn to this event, to this vision of God the Son on the holy hill as evidence for how he's not making up this stuff about Christ returning in power. And he leaves us realizing that the Old Testament scriptures have been thoroughly confirmed and the New Testament scriptures are born out of the eyewitness accounts of God breaking into human history in the person of Jesus Christ. So verses 16 to 21 are just one big section, but with two parts. The first part, 17 to 18, sorry, 16 to 18, commending the apostolic writings, and, um, and then 19 through 21, speaking of the Old Testament scriptures. We see that in the Old Testament, we find the truths of the New Testament concealed, and in the New Testament, we find the truths of the Old Testament revealed. Both are necessary, both are reliable, both are divine in origin. And I've heard people scoff at the idea of knowing God, and they suggest, well, if there is a God, he really should have done more to make himself apparent. And that's a sure giveaway to me that they've never seriously examined the Bible for themselves. Imagine a collection of 66 writings. Some of those, these uh, writings are compilations of other writings as well. And they're written over the course of 1,500 years in three different languages on three different continents by a large number of human authors, some scholars, some government officials, some tradesmen, a soldier, a doctor, a shepherd, just as examples. And these writings, they represent a number of literary types, history, poetry, wisdom literature, prophecy, narrative, apocalyptic vision, treaties, technical descriptions, censuses royal proclamations, public speeches, parables, and more. And the thing is, these writings correspond flawlessly. And with each edition, the original message is filled in and drawn out, not in any way diminished or changed. Together they form a beautiful mosaic that tells one story with one main character and offers one profound path of joy for all who would find their place in him partaking in the divine nature, yet becoming more truly human every day. And that's why this book has been preserved more than any ancient document. It's been published more than any other volume. It's been translated into more languages than any other writings, 2,883 and counting. Because the Bible is simply the most essential and compelling book ever written. I dare you to thoroughly examine this book because it will change you for it is no mere mythology. In the last three verses we read, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
Now, I wanted you to notice how specific and scripture-saturated the transfiguration account was because Peter will go on in chapter 2 to denounce false prophecies that are simply a product of sensual minds exploiting people with false words. So we need to see that verses 16 to 21 are one big section that seamlessly holds forth the reliability, the necessity of scripture. And um, it's kind of neat, the two parts uh, to the one section. So there are three ways in which the apostles' testimony is put side by side with the Old Testament prophecies. First, we see language of sight with glory spoken of in verse 17 and light and day and morning star in verse 19. Second is the language of sound with voice in verse 17 echoed by word and spoke in verses 19 and 21. Lastly, the language of movement with the same Greek verb translated born to him, born from heaven in verses 17 and 18, but translated carried along in verse 21. So these parallels show that the point of recalling this transfiguration, the point isn't, it's all proven because I had the ultimate mountaintop experience. Thankfully, that's not what Peter leaves us with. The transfiguration wasn't just some crazy psychedelic vision. It was an incredibly thorough confirmation of a number of Old Testament promises. And verse 19 says, we also have the prophetic word to confirm the apostolic witness. It's all written down from it for us. And Peter's takeaway isn't, trust me, I had a mountaintop experience. It's trust the scriptures, both the Old Testament prophetic word and the apostolic testimonies, which Peter understood would make up the New Testament scriptures. It's important that Peter's pointing us to the scripture and not to the experience itself because visions and mystical experiences are popular. It's so easy to talk to a medium or to visit a temple or to try some ceremony from a spirituality that you don't even really understand. Or even if you give lip service to the Bible, it's easier to rely on lighting candles or endlessly repeating set prayers or allowing oneself to be emotionally manipulated into manufacturing a spiritual experience. And pretty soon, if you chase after those things, you're totally distracted from actually living for Christ because you're too entranced by reports of a glory cloud appearing during worship or the Virgin Mary showing up on someone's piece of toast. But I'm also aware that something written in a book can feel anachronistic. It can, it can feel out of touch. Like, really, I'm just going to ponder a book instead of trusting my instinct or asking a friend what to do? Really, I'm going to find my peace within these pages, not in the trendy yoga or the posh mindfulness retreat? Really, I'm going to do what a book says when everything in me is telling me that this forbidden relationship or this out-of-body experience or this fast track to success is so right. You see, there's a constant temptation for us to drift from the written word, and we long for a voice directly from heaven, or if we can't find it, at least an earthly voice that sounds sweet and confident. But the voice from heaven already happened, and it left us with everything we need. Even among Christians, the Bible is woefully neglected. Many years ago, I worked at Starbucks, and I had a Christian coworker who was just tormenting herself for about two months trying to figure out this certain major decision in her life. Uh, and it reached a point where she just kind of went mental in the middle of a shift, and she was, she was weeping uncontrollably. 
So we brought her back to the office and she explained her dilemma and she, she just sobbed. I just want to hear what God is telling me. And for some reason, she expected this to come in a purely subjective manner, but never thought to open her Bible to shape her convictions and priorities. Now, my supervisor was also a Christian and he, he just told her to go home and, and gave her strict instructions to spend her afternoon looking at the book let your prayers emerge from that. Don't try to discern something mystical apart from it. Look to the book. These things were written down so that you would have divine power for life, being fruitful and effective, established in joy and peace. So pay attention to the scripture. It's a lamp shining in a dark place. Do you find yourself in any dark places lately? Maybe you have a sense that my future can only bring suffering. Maybe you have a situation so complex that you can't even think about it without just shutting down emotionally. Maybe you have a relationship that feels like death. Whatever it is, you can turn the light on and let the precious and very great promises illuminate your way. Or maybe life is comfortable and there's no real suffering to speak of. I mean, you've got everything you want for the most part and you're on track to make your life goals. I mean, you even have the luxury of making ambitious life goals. Well, Peter would remind you most of all not to neglect the written word. Deuteronomy warns, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of slavery. So yes, we already know these things, but we need to be stirred up by way of reminder. You would do well to pay attention lest you fall into ineffectiveness and unfruitfulness, being nearsighted and perhaps even blind. Well, the Bible is to serve as that lamp until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. What's he talking about? The day refers to the day of the Lord, which the minor prophets painted as this climactic moment of the judgment of evil and the deliverance of God's people. And that began at the cross but it awaits Christ's return for its completion. So again, Peter's referring to Jesus' return when the reality in our hearts becomes the reality before our eyes. Scripture is our guide until our subjective senses experience what the fixed prophetic word was describing all along. Now, morning star is a reference to Jesus. You can see that in Revelation twenty-two sixteen. The idea is that with Jesus' return, the dark things of night are done and eternal morning has arrived. The last two verses provide us with some understanding of the process by which scripture was inspired. Peter wants us to know this because uh, understanding that process of inspiration can actually bolster our faith. First, he says it's not just a matter of someone's interpretation of God or interpretation of reality. It's not just their decision to craft a new sacred writing in a certain way. That would be called false prophecy, and it's our topic for next week. No, to the contrary, these writings are from men who spoke from God 
as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Well, what does that mean? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that they somehow fell into a trance and their hand grabbed for a quill and just started moving and then they came to and, whoa, there's something really profound here. Thankfully, our God worked in a far less creepy way than that. And you can, see that, you can see that actually in each writing of scripture, it bears some of the style and the personality and the experiences of the human authors. And that's the wonder of it, really, that there are idioms and there's symbols that made sense to people of a certain time and a certain culture. And so we have to do some work. We have to learn about the original audience before we try to understand what the Bible means for us today because it wasn't written by the human author for 21st century Canadians. But thankfully, it was written by the divine author for people of all times and all cultures. Yet God didn't override their way of communicating in order to make the Bible all some sort of like neutral style as if such a thing could even exist. He left the marks of their times and their cultures, and instead he superintends the creative work. He fills their minds with the precise and inerrant content, and the result is a very human, yet thoroughly divine communication. Remember, it's the Holy Spirit they were carried along by. It wasn't some unknown spirit that came over one man when he was alone in a cave or a grove of trees. The Holy Spirit has been made known throughout the scriptures. He is the one who brings life and order and beauty, who makes known truth, who serves as the agent of God's personal presence with us, and he's the one who empowers the works of God through his people. This is all important to remember. Because if the Bible is just the ramblings of some primitive ancients who spoke for themselves, then sure, it, it can easily be overturned by more sophisticated or more relevant voices. But if it's actually from God, then it can't. In that case, our own culture and our own times and our own experiences must be interpreted through its lens and not the other way around. And I want to tell you here today that that is the case. You need to recall the things written in this book. Though compiled from many prophets, they are all the work of God's final messenger, our glorious and excellent Savior, Jesus Christ. And if we love life, it's to him that we must listen. And if we refuse, God himself will require it of us. And that's where 2 Peter 1 leaves us. Last week, Peter reminded us of the qualities resulting from the growth that true Christians can and must experience. And if by God's grace we're living that way, then we will never fall. It's not that the churches weren't aware of those things, but Peter wrote in the first part of chapter one, he wrote those things because he wanted to stir them up with a reminder. More than that, he wants that reminder to persist with them even after he's gone. So Peter tells them and Peter tells us that he's writing about this need for growth while he can because the inspired word is the sure light in a dark place. Both the Old and the New Testaments you don't need leaders with apostle-style authority. You don't need mountaintop experiences. That's already happened. And you certainly don't need spiritual gurus rattling off whatever inspiration they imagine from their own consciousness. You need the very words of God. So as we consider the sure promise of Jesus' return, let's make the most of these days of God's purposeful patience. Press into his word. 
continue on the path of truth you started down. Use the precious and very great promises. Heed the warnings. Remember the path set for us by our Lord Jesus Christ. As you live out scripture by the power of the Holy Spirit, that same spirit who carried along its authors will bring grace and peace to you. Let's pray. Father God, I ask that the people in this room would not quickly forget the nature of their salvation, would not quickly forget the path of sanctification our Lord has shown us for sharing in the divine nature and escaping from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Stir us up by way of reminder. Cause us to love your truth and to treasure your book until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. For the sake of Christ's name. Amen.